Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of the podcast, we are talking about women doing large animal medicine and rural areas. So as we all know, women make up now just over 80% of DVM students in the U.S. And there's always, always a lot of chatter about that. And one piece of that chatter, it happens to be, that's often raised rather, is that with all of these women, women veterinarians don't want to do large animal medicine. Another like kind of chatter tidbit is that they also don't want to be in rural areas. So, well, our our applicant data foreshadows our discussion for this episode. There is absolutely no statistical difference in interest in large animal production animal medicine um, at the time of application for veterinary applicants. Women applicants do actually report a greater interest in equine medicine. But the other piece is that there's no statistical difference in the rural origins or the desire to practice in rural areas across genders. No difference. Women have the same percentage that want that would that either come from rural backgrounds and, and there's the same percentage that want to go into rural areas as well. So in short, women do want to work on big animals and they do want to do it in rural communities. Full stop. So to talk about this topic, so excited to welcome three guests to the show. I am welcoming Dr. Bridget Halsberg, Kaki McCotra. Yes. I, ah, good. And DVM student <laughs> Asia Upchurch. I want to shout out Colorado State for inspiring this particular show topic <laughs> and helping to pull together this episode and this group of amazing women. So welcome to the show, everybody. Hi. <laughs> Go Rams. Go Rams. Go Rams. Go Rams. Okay. Easy now. Easy now. <laughs> so we, have one, we have one non-Ram here. So actually, so as is our custom on the show, we have our guests always do self-introduction. So I'm actually going to start with the student tonight. Oh. Asia, about yourself. Hi. So my name is Asia Upchurch. I'm currently a third-year DVM student at Colorado State University. Go Rams. Go Rams. So where are you from? Are you from Colorado originally? Yes, I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. Went to Colorado State University for my undergraduate degree. And so I'll be a double ram here in 2021. Oh, okay. Awesome. So Kaki, why don't we go to you? Yeah. So I'm Dr. Kaki Nikotri. I'm a 13 grad of Texas A&M University. I own and operate a rural veterinary clinic in Clifton, Texas, which is just northwest of Waco. I went into school knowing I wanted to do rural large animal medicine, and then here I am doing it, owning the clinic, making it work. I'm a mom of two adorable little babies and a wife to an amazing husband and trying to manage all that and do rural practice and own the clinic and love and life. Awesome. 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 And last but certainly not least, Bridget. So my name is Dr. Bridget Heilsberg, and I am also a 2013 grad, although I am a 2013 grad of Colorado State University. Go Rams. I am a second career veterinarian. So my first career was actually in the United States Navy, as you can see behind me. I drove a 34-foot patrol boat 
in the Navy. And then once I got out, I finally got into vet school, which was the dream always. And equine medicine and practice was always the dream that way. So I followed it, graduated, worked out in rural practice in rural North Texas, which is where I am now in equine practice. And in 2016, I started my own ambulatory practice. And I'm currently the still the owner and main practitioner, solo ambulatory at Crown 3 Equine in Whitesboro, Texas, which is a very, very tiny town up near the Oklahoma border. Awesome. So two of the three of you mentioned that you already had an interest in rural practice, equine, large animal. So Asia, did you go to vet school knowing that this is kind of what you wanted to do? Actually, yes. So I grew up in Denver, um, completely urban, no experience whatsoever with livestock besides some horses behind me that I'd feed carrots. And I stumbled upon the animal science degree and I was like, hey, why not do that? This is something that I've never experienced before. And I ended up falling in love those first four years of undergrad. And so I automatically decided that's something that I wanted to continue pursuing uh, just because I fell so in love with it. And yeah, I went straight into vet school knowing that I wanted to do large animals. Wow. So mm-hmm. Kathy and Bridget, how old were you when you knew that you wanted to work on, you know, big animals? Gosh. So I don't I, I didn't have like the traditional sort of second grade. I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian kind of thing. I graduated high school knowing that I wanted to make I wanted to be a leader in agriculture and decided that vet school was my fastest route to do that. And so the agriculture was really what pushed me towards veterinary medicine. And so because of that, livestock and rural medicine just sort of fell right into place. I think I took sort of a different mental approach to it, but that's, that's how I got into it. And I grew, I grew up in a rural area too. So it was sort of second nature for me. All right. And Bridget. Yes. So in contrast to Khaki, I am that super classic, like... I was 10 years old and wanted to be a horse vet. And now I'm a horse vet. To be perfectly (laughs) honest, I was 10 years old and wanted to be a veterinarian. Spent a lot of time volunteering at small animal hospitals because that's what my family had. They had dogs and cats. And so that's what they could expose me to. And pretty much didn't fall in love with any of it and just wanted to ride horses and play with ponies. And that's what I did from the time that I was very young on and just sort of stuck. I'm that girl that never grew out of that phase. (laughs) All right. All right. So we do still have some diversity of how folks kind of came to large animal practice. So, well, tell me, Jackie, what about it really appealed to you? Because it seems like you kind of, you knew coming in and that this was a veterinary medicine was a vehicle to certainly leadership, but what about large animal and or rural practice specifically really kind of got your attention? I think it was, you know, growing up in small town, Texas, and the veterinarian was a leader in everything, right? Like our local veterinarian was on the school board, on the fair board, you know, on the city council, like just sort of this very natural leadership position. And it's somebody that people look to for answers to things. (laughs) And of course, you know, now that I'm sitting in that position, sometimes I think, why are people asking me these questions? But I think that was sort of my path is, is having watched you know, largely men do that before me. I knew that that's the path that I wanted to take. And um, a DVM just seemed a logical conclusion to get to that. And just really wanted to be involved in the community. And 
I think the truth is I've never been in, in anything but rural medicine. So I'm not sure that that I have a comparison, but I think that being involved in the community is just sort of par for the course with rural medicine. Like they go hand in hand. I'm not sure you can do rural medicine and not be a strong part of your community. I just don't think that you can do it successfully. Mm -hmm. So Asia, you're coming from an urban area. You're coming from Denver. Yes. Um, apparently, there were some horses in the backyard somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some rando horses in the city. So, what, what, how, you know, you, you kind of discovered this love in undergrad, but really kind of where do you see your career going and, 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 and why? What, what is it that really drew you? So, I think one of the major reasons that I really fell in love with agriculture just in, it, in and of itself is because I came from such an urban background. I had no idea anything. Like, I literally was one of those people that thought that your meat came from the grocery store. I knew that maybe a cow was involved at some point, but I wasn't sure how it got from point A to my plate. And once I started getting into my uh, curriculum, I realized there was such a disconnect. And I really wanted to kind of help with that disconnect. And then I started getting a lot of questions about the safety of things and how things are handled in animal welfare. And that really kind of like nailed down the fact that I wanted to do veterinary medicine. And that's kind of why I wanted to do it. So I could provide better answers for that and kind of have my hand in there and be a little bit more reputable about it. So I, I think it was just kind of that curiosity of learning more and wanting to teach as well. Mm. So, so you said wanting to teach. Are you going into academia? <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want to go into academia, but you know, trap. maybe like a, a few trap. side things. Oh yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> we'll have you back on the show to talk about that some other time. <laughs> oh, no. so, so Bridget, I'm really curious about what you would tell students not like the young version, the younger version of Asia in undergrad or the high school version of Asia coming from the city, what would you tell her or colleagues or other folks out there about rural practice? What is it like? It's exactly like what Kaki said it is. And that's what I love about it. So in some ways, it's really annoying to be part of such a small town in such a small community because I can never not be Doc. Like I'm Doc at the gas station and I'm Doc at the grocery store and I'm Doc at the post office and I'm Doc when I'm buying whatever at whatever. You're never not Doc. And so it's I've been giving a fecal, fecal sample at a funeral. Oh, <laughs> like amazing. at a funeral. So yeah, no, it's, it's exactly that. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. You're never not Doc, right? So, yeah. you know, you're standing in line buying stuff at the grocery store and all you want, you've got like your cheat food or whatever, because you've had a horrible day and somebody comes up behind you and is like, hey, and starts randomly chatting about their horse's manure sample or the colic that happened or whatever. And so that's just, that's, that's rural life. It's, it's exactly like that. Um, so it's not for everybody. It's really not because there are definitely people who really need the, the division between their work life and their home life. Mm -hmm. So I just happen to not necessarily be one of those people. I find my work-life balance, which I really hate that term anyway. I prefer work-life blend because everything just sort of blends together in rural practice. I find it in other ways. And so if you're one of those people that needs to turn off being the veterinarian and go home and not be one and be really separate for whatever reason, mental health or your own space, that's totally valid. But rural medicine may not be for you because in rural medicine, we really are, 
we're never not doc. And they do look to us for so many things. I mean, I get asked questions about what's going on in the world. I, I get asked questions about, especially since people know that I do a lot of leadership activities and I'm very vocal about how much time I spend in Washington, D.C. What's, what's going on at the Hill? What's, what's going on with what's impacting agriculture on a national scale? I get asked questions about where I think the commodities market is going. I am your horse vet. I have no idea what you're going to do next year. <laughs> but they think I know that. <laughs> so, That's true. Uh, yeah. And, and in all honesty, like I actually do kind of need to know what soybeans are going to do next year because what soybeans are going to do next year is going to impact the cattle market. And what's going to impact the cattle market is going to impact the horse market. What impacts the horse market mm-hmm. impacts my lifestyle. So it's all mm-hmm. super interconnected. It really is. And I think that if you love how interconnected everything can be, then rural medicine is absolutely for you. Okay. All right. So, so Kathy, what, what's your setup like? So you own a practice. So I do. Your, what's your setup? What is, what's the setup? So um, we are about uh, 30% food animal and the rest small animal. I do no equine. <laughs> I'm not a horse girl uh, um, at all. Bridget and I have a lot of conversations about that. But I, we do a lot of food animal. I have an associate who is, um, he's been with the practice almost 40 years now and sort of phasing himself out. And then I have my two kids that I homeschool out of the clinic. And so it's a real family oriented kind of thing. And I think that's another benefit of rural medicine. Like everybody just knows my kids. They know my family. They know that Nellie's going to be doing her math on the wall and surgery and it's okay. And, you know, it's this real integrated kind of thing. So that's another benefit of it is that it's just all, we're all this big family and everybody knows that. And that's the expectation. And I think that that could be true in some urban settings too, but it's even more accepted and sort of welcomed in rural practice. Yeah, that's our setup. That's, that's my, how I do my work-life integration, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious, and, and Asia, I'll, I'll pitch it to you first and, and then mm-hmm. uh, your colleagues about, so, so this gender piece. So yes. is it an issue? <laughs> is, it a, is it a thing? Is it, I mean, well, clearly we're doing a show, so we know that it's a thing. And, you know, it's a call, so we know that it was a thing. (laughs) But is it a thing on a day-to-day basis? Um, How do people talk about women? You know, you're you're in school, you're in the midst of your program. How do people talk about women going into these practice areas? Honestly, I haven't noticed too much being said about it. And that might just be because of the people that I've surrounded myself with that I've actually gone out on calls with, I haven't noticed too much of like anybody saying anything negative about it. It's just been more like, that's really awesome that you're doing that. Like, it, It's never been directed towards gender-wise. The only surprise comes when people outside of veterinary medicine ask about how many people are in there that are male. And I say like, because my class right now, it's 138. And I think we have about 25. And that's actually the highest I think out of the four classes right now. And it's just, it's a little bit of a surprise, but I haven't noticed anything negative whatsoever, anybody pointing anything out. So I don't know if I answer that very well. No, no. I mean, I'm kind of glad to hear that it's not an issue. (laughs) So Bridget, (laughs) has it been an issue? (laughs) You know, in all honesty, I think the people that have issues with it self-select away from you. Mm. Because mm-hmm. 
it's, you know, even though in rural practice, it tends to be a little bit less veterinary dense than in urban practice, there's still, by and large, there's still choices, right? And people who have issues with women in veterinary medicine and with women in rural practice who are going to make assumptions about your capabilities because of your gender tend to not call you. They want to call the dude. And that's great. Go ahead. The dude needs business too. We all need to be able to eat and put food on our tables. I will say that the people who do call me, every once in a while, I get a random comment about, you know, um, something probably considered totally inappropriate. Like, man, veterinarians didn't look like you back in my day. Well, you know what? I usually respond to that with a little bit of a quip, like back in your day, they didn't have good drugs. And we move forward. <laughs> like, I mean, and, and most a lot of guys like kind of go, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. I'm like, well, back, and then we get into a conversation, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't have good chemical sedation. We didn't. We didn't have good methods of chemical restraint. And because we didn't, you had to be bigger, you had to be brawnier, you had to muscle things down and wrestle things down and all of that. And that created a certain stereotype in people's minds. Well, today we do things a lot differently. Chemical restraint is a very valuable tool used in all aspects of animal medicine, not just large animal medicine. And it enables people of many different sizes and abilities to handle animals of many different sizes and abilities in a safe manner. So... In all honesty, I've had a lot more people be like, you need to go find that redheaded vet or that Jeep vet or anything along those lines, that Navy vet, the vet who swears a lot. Yeah, all of those things. (laughs) (laughs) You need to go find her for for vastly more reasons than the people who say, oh, I can't stand her because she's a woman. Yeah, got it. So what do you all see as the unique challenges of being either in large animal equine and or kind of rural practice. Now, of course, we've, we've established that those two things kind of go together because you need the space, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right? So what are some of those unique challenges though? Tacky? I have had to sort of teach myself in the years that I've been doing this to, be, to learn how to be more direct because when you're dealing with mostly men and the majority of my producers are men, right? To just be more direct, they want me to not soften the blow so much. Like just, you know, hey, she needs a C-section. It's going to be this much. What's your, like, here we go. You need to just decide instead of like, well, she's in a lot of pain. And we could, you know, like, don't beat around the bush. Just be real direct. And so managing how I learn to communicate with other people is certainly one of those things. And then I think one of the big challenges, you know, that, that we face as a community of veterinarians and women right now is, hey, if practice doesn't look the same the way that it looked 40 years ago, right? A lot of us are moms, we have families, we have other responsibilities. And it's okay if I'm not on call 24 hours a day, every day of the week. That's okay. And just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. Like, um, I will sort of, I've never had a client say anything to me about, yeah, I I mean, it's just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. I've never had a client say anything to me about being a woman. The majority of the flack that I get about women in rural medicine and women in large animal medicine is almost invariably from other veterinarians. And I find that to be really frustrating. Oh, 100%. Managing that communication and then, you know, yeah. And then the, you know, just the, the, how, how does practice look? And I think that's what's kind of, it's kind of awesome to be that we're forging the way and laying that path right now to like, well, this is what I want it to look like. And hopefully, you know, that we'll lay a good solid path and foundation that sustains career and sustains a family life that other 
female and male, because male veterinarians want a family life too. They want to be dads too, or just have a life. You know, hopefully that's we lay a sustainable path. But we have to figure out what that looks like. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges right now. I think that you brought up a really interesting point. And certainly we see this in terms of issues around recruiting in general, that some of the biggest champions are veterinarians, but some of the biggest detractors are veterinarians. Yeah. This idea that that your experience in working with clients that, you know, for Bridget, she says, you know, those folks that are not checking for women, (laughs) that self-selecting other, (laughs) you know, other sources of But the folks that are kind of given some pushback are actually within your professional community. Mm-hmm. And I think, that's, you know, I think that that's something internal to veterinary medicine as a profession, as a community that we really need to wrestle with. That, that you know, why, are there, why is there this criticism internally when it's not necessarily a criticism that's manifesting itself that way with the general public? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm right there with Khaki. Like, and Asia, please don't get dejected because it's not all <laughs> bad. Like, we're not all evil to oh each other. Oh my god! Okay, no. yeah. No. But you know, some of the harshest criticism that I have ever received was from somebody that I considered to be a mentor, and I still like I can hear her telling me this word for word. It was right after I started my own practice. I left and went out on my own. I was horribly burnt out from my previous practice. I had a bleeding ulcer. I weighed like 15 pounds under what I should weigh. It was awful. And I had decided to take the very beginning of June. So I left that previous practice in May, technically opened my doors June 6th. And then like two weeks later, I went on a three-day vacation. Three days. It was the first three days I had taken off since January. And I was at the airport, sitting at the airport, and I sent her a text message saying, FYI, I'm heading out of town for a couple of days. I don't anticipate anything going wrong, all of my clients that I have talked to, because let's be honest, I had been in practice for 10 days. You know, all of my clients that I had talked to, which accounted to like 15 clients at that point, um, (laughs) know to go to Weems and Stevens, but in case any of them can't get on a trailer, I'm going to give them your phone number. And she called me and ripped me a new one about how I must not be very serious about starting my practice because I was daring to take time off. And that was the problem with the new generation of veterinarians that none of us know how to work, that none of us know how to do anything right, that right. the you know, future of veterinary medicine is going straight to hell in a handbasket because of people like me that didn't take practice seriously. Wow. And I hung up and was like, I'm taking three days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's so, it's such a thing. And like, you'll have this guilt trip about it internally. I mean, I'm still struggling with it. We close you know, I cut off call at 10 p.m. and I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is going to be the worst thing ever. And you know what? There's been absolutely zero pushback from it because my clients understand I have a family. You know, that's mm-hmm. another benefit to rural practice. My clients know my family. They know I'm at a 4-H meeting. I'm not going to answer your call right now. You know, and it's it's just... it. it I, I really think that the most flack that I get is from other veterinarians, men and women, both. both. But there's, mm-hmm. some, there's some like rule that if we didn't go through all the same trials and tribulations that someone else did, then I somehow don't have the same badge of honor. Mm. And, you know, my degree hangs on my wall the same as everybody else's. So I just don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm right there with you. And it's, you know, because clients and, and Asia, this is what I tell students that come ride with me. Don't listen to those practitioners that tell you that you have to live for your practice. 
Because if you don't, your clients will leave and find somebody else. No, they won't. And the ones that do, give a bye. You don't want their business mm-hmm. anyway. Because the ones that yep. expect you to be on call 24-7, 365 and never have a life of your own, you don't want them. They never spend money with you anyway. They're always sucking up your time and energy for like $200 a month or something along those lines. Oh. And it just isn't sustainable. The clients, especially in rural practice, clients are totally trainable. And clients, just like Kaki said, they know me. They know that rural practice is crazy and we all know everything. So my husband started a concession truck business for one of my other clients who runs a roping on Wednesday nights. And every single one of my clients knows that on Wednesday nights, if you want me to see your pony, put it on a trailer and bring it to the roping because I'm working the concession stand. (laughs) (laughs) And and nobody nobody even blinks about it. I'm I'm honest with all of them about the fact that I go to DC like two or three times a year and that I go down to Austin and talk to people down there on the hill. And you know what? None of them go, oh my God, this is awful. I can't believe that you've abandoned us. They all go, well, yeah, while you're down there, mention this thing to them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know? So it really is members of the profession, you know? it's And it's... I think the profession as a whole is a little bit afraid of change. And there's... We could talk all day long about generational differences and communication differences and, and all of that. But... You know, just it's okay. Like it's okay to yeah. not do it twenty four seven, three sixty five, and to make your future your own. And that includes successful rural practices that don't look like James Harriet and that don't look like they did twenty it's true. years ago. <laughs> who, by the way, suffered from depression and was not who he wrote himself out to be. Like that was a fictional character that he wrote. That I think that's a yeah. conversation that needs to be had sometimes too. <laughs> this man all had right. the same struggles that we all had. So, like. It wasn't all roses and teacups in James Harriet's world either. Like, it just wasn't. Sorry. Right. right. And didn't he, like, he died of Q fever, which is a horrible suicide <laughs> disease. It's awful. Sorry. <laughs> took a turn. We took a turn. No. Important information. Bridget and Kathy dropping gems on the podcast. <laughs> But I mean, you know, what I, what I hear is not only is this the, the primary criticism, of course, coming from internally to internal to the profession, which is something that I think that we need to deal with, but there are issues, there's issues around generational difference mm-hmm. that may show up and may look like or feel like generation, uh, gender, gendered kind of bias, but maybe really might be generational issues and kind of understanding the progression of veterinary medicine in general, like, you know, the chemical restraints and how we practice differently now. And, and certainly the demographics have changed as well. And so there are, it sounds like there are a lot of issues here. It does sound like for this group, at least, clients are not necessarily. So let's look positively. What are some of the things that Asia, what are you looking forward to in terms of going into rural practice? So I've already been involved in agriculture, I think now for what, like nine years. So I've done a lot of like networking, already kind of like building up a reputation because I follow a vet around. I follow him around pretty much anytime I have free time. So I've really kind of established myself as who I am and who I am as like a future veterinarian. And I look forward to just making more of those kind of connections that I've already made. Everybody has been so nice, so welcoming. 
Like one time my car broke down when I was at a huge like beef producer's place and they came out and helped me. And I think I just like the camaraderie that everybody has and they're so willing to get to know you and understand you. And some of these clients, they found out that I got into vet school and continue to ask this doctor how I'm doing and about all that progress. And I just, I love the way that they make me feel. They make me feel like part of their family. And I just look forward to more of that and really establishing who I am as a vet rather than Asia coming along with Dr. So-and-so. Like I look forward to that and having everybody see me come into my own. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So awesome. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you all love about, Bridget, what do you like about being right there on that border of Texas and Oklahoma in your little bitty town? We don't talk about Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> Oklahoma. <laughs> What do you like being about it? Yeah. <laughs> I'll be in um, your actually, house. So, in, in all honesty, <laughs> you were the one that said it was like close to the border. I'm just saying. It is. We are. We are so close. And I am licensed in both states. And it's just, that's a thing. It's like the Texas Oklahoma thing. thing. It's a thing. You know, you got to get it's your plug in for right, right. just a little dig at Oklahoma anytime you can. <laughs> so, you know, I think that the thing that I love most about rural practice is that we are a family out here. Like, they know me as Doc and they know my husband and they know my horses. And when my horses do something stupid like bust through the fence at 5 a.m. on Easter Sunday and go traipsing through downtown and eat the flowers in front of the post office, <laughs> the cop calls me and says, Hey, Doc B, your horses are standing in the post office parking lot. <laughs> like, that's literally the phone call I got. <laughs> and my response was, All right, I'm coming. <laughs> And he was, and I get out to the, you know, I get dressed and I go running out there trying to tear off to go get my horses because I'm horribly embarrassed because of course it's my horses that have escaped and are wandering through downtown on Easter Sunday. And he's got like, you know, like a seatbelt or something that he had some type of weird belt structure that he had in his car around one's neck and he's walking her and the other one's following behind and then some other guy pulled over with a halter in his truck and through like and so by the time that I even get out there and down my driveway my horse is two-thirds of the way back to me because everybody just stopped and they were like yep knock these horses got out again yep <laughs> rural medicine is a family and it's a, just like any family it has its positive yeah. negatives and we're sometimes we're completely dysfunctional yep. but we're a family. <laughs> Mm. So what do you all think are ways to get, I mean, certainly we want to find folks that are suited for this particular kind of lifestyle, right? Because it really is a lifestyle living in a rural area, just like, you know, sub, the suburbs or, you know, city folk living in urban areas. It's, it's Part of it is that you're drawn to that lifestyle. But really kind of what do you think we can do to kind of help identify and nurture this interest in going into rural practice? Khaki, mm-hmm. you see a lot more students than <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. I do. I see a lot of students. I think, I think the rhetoric around it has to change, right? Like it has to stop being talked about as like, this is so hard and you're on call all the time and, you know, it requires all this strength and it's going to be really hard if you're a woman and blah, blah, blah. Like I think the rhetoric around it internally inside of our profession has to change. And there has to be, just like I said before, a path forged forward. And there are a lot of women doing this. You know, I can think of five off the top of my head in 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 Texas that are that are doing this and trying to forge this path and and nurturing those students 
you know, I have I have students through my practice all the time, and we we talk about client communication, and we talk about this generational gap, and we talk about the gender non-issue that it really is. You know, like with anything, you're more likely to do something if you see someone like yourself doing it. And yeah. those of us that are doing it just have to stand up and be seen doing it and forging a path forward. And I think the rhetoric around it will change. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, like on my end as a student, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I think that CSU has done a fantastic job of facilitating that anybody can go and do whatever they want. But I think that they've also chosen very, very strong faculty and staff for their livestock medicine service because just thinking about it today in my lab, we have more practicing women in our livestock service than we do men. I think we only have three or four men clinicians there right now. And that's not a bad thing. Like It's definitely, again, a personal choice. But I think the women that they have, they are so passionate about what they do and it just exudes and is like you can just feel it and it gets you excited for it. Like You get really pumped up for it and know that you can do it. And... I, I think that CSU has just done so well with that. Asia, I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. What about nurturing interest among students of color, right? And so <laughs> more rural areas, at least in the United States, and certainly in some other, numerous other countries as well, there's certainly less racial and ethnic diversity in communities. So we're talking about folks that are, are kind of maybe going into communities being maybe not completely the lonely only yeah. <laughs> which so on, but you know, one of the few, right? And so how do you kind of navigate that particular space? Because one, we know that that there may be issues sometimes around isolation. It doesn't mean that those those communities are hostile. It doesn't mean that they're not welcoming, but but certainly we do also know and acknowledge that we all have kind of our biases and that we have experiences and expectations that may not mesh up. So from the perspective of students of color, how might we might kind of find and identify and lure folks into at least exploring this particular area? You know, that's very hard because it's definitely a very personal decision and you know generally people of color, I can't say all of them, obviously, because it's not true. Like my dad grew up in an area where he had pigs and sheep and stuff like that. But I feel like most of them come from an urban setting. So they're not very familiar with it. And outreach isn't very good in those types of areas. So I think it's really just kind of reaching the appropriate population. And again, like I said earlier, like that whole disconnect with people, we're not doing a good job of really getting everybody that we can. We focus so heavily in rural areas to share that rural information. So maybe there may be fantastic colored doctors out there that would, or doctors that would be, or (laughs) colored students out there that would be fantastic doctors in rural settings. And I think maybe they're just not being reached with all this information. I feel like it was just kind of an oddity for me or like I was an anomaly just because I stumbled upon it. And I honestly never thought that I was going to be on the complete opposite end of the spectrum when I first started because I'm working with older, very con- like conservative males of like a different generation. And I'm over here, a very young colored female. And I've got my first comment last year about how I stuck out like a sore thumb. And I know for me personally, I just kind of went into it saying, hey, I'm Asia. I'm going to be Dr. Upchurch the best that I can be, not thinking about the fact that I'm colored in any type of way. So I think it's just kind of a very personal 
mm-hmm. view to how you approach it. And like like Dr. Ridget was saying earlier, like if they don't want you, they don't want you. And that's honestly their loss. Like yeah. I'll just go down down the way to work on mm-hmm. Farmer John's mm-hmm. cattle and he can rave about how awesome I am and everyone yeah. else can be sad. <laughs> do it. Yep. Do it. Do it. I do have to note though. So you are a low key, like got a rural background somewhere in there <laughs> in that family history, low key. Cause you mentioned your dad having some pigs and I'm like, okay, there's still a connection there. Just FYI. Well, he, it was more like when he was growing up, like his grandparents had, sure. he grew up in Ohio. So, <laughs> but I do think that it's, it's, an interesting note because I do think for a lot of people of color in the U.S., particularly for for folks like me who identify as African American, usually kind of having more kind of lineage roots in the Southeast, you're only maybe one or two generations kind of away from that kind of rural community setting. Like there's that great migration, people move to the city out. You know, and that type of thing. And so it, I'm, I find in my, you know, ever senioring years, um, that the more that like, we start asking, asking these kinds of questions, you know, we start finding that kind of once you start picking through the background, it's really, even though it's not necessarily for me, my experience, but like my mom grew up on a farm, right? Mm-hmm. So she now lives in the city, but, but there's not, you know, there's some kind of connection somewhere there. Right. It's not, I mean, there are, of course, people that just are complete one offs where they're like, I am moving from downtown DC and I'm going to go move <laughs> to some rando place like, you know, in Montana. Mm-hmm. But people but are I do awesome think clients, that, by the way. And they're awesome. <laughs> yes. <clients. laughs> yes. Yes. They are. They're my favorite clients. So tell us what do you like about those clients? Those people are those awesome clients, clients because need just, me. Yeah. Yeah. They, <laughs> they need they have me. no idea. Yeah. 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 And they like, they follow all directions and there's yes. no sense of like, well, my granddad did it like this. And so I'm just going to keep doing it like that. It's like, well, doc said, so that's what I'm going to do. And I'm like, oh my God, praise you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> They're my favorite clients. I love them. I, I love agreed. Them. Agreed, because they they yeah. do. They're like, oh, okay, so you know, I well, I hired the vet, and the vet says this. No, yeah, thanks. I yeah. know that you've been in horses for forty years, but the vet said this, right? And, and we don't great. wait four weeks for okay. something. It's like, no, my animal's sick. I need to call you right now. I'm like, ah, oh, hey, yes, <laughs> yes. They're the best clients. Everybody, <laughs> everybody, move out to the middle of nowhere. Right. It's great. So, so podcast poll when this episode drops. I want to know how many other rural practitioners love those urban transplants, <laughs> the city slickers that have now moved <laughs> to the country. <laughs> so you heard it here, Kaki and Bridget really love city slickers who moved to moved to the country. So as, as we kind of draw this kind of conversation to a close, what do you want to tell your Peers. What do you want to tell your colleagues out there about women in large animal equine practice? What do you want them to know? Here's your time, free space. Keep it clean, sailor. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you going to come at me like that? <laughs> and the answer is a full disclosure. Bridget and I have been friends for many years. <laughs> uh, um, so what do you I, want your you know, colleagues to know? 
Right. I want I want all of my colleagues, especially the ones that are just like Kaki and I and colleagues like Asia coming up. I want them to know that it is possible. Like it is. It is possible to create your own practice. It is possible to have a family in it or not. It is possible to have a work-life balance that you choose to define. And it's gonna suck for a little bit because there's a ton of naysayers out there. But just buckle down and find the people that are gonna tell you, nope, nope, you're right, you're right. It is possible. Guard those people close to you and prove everybody wrong. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell people this all the time when they, you know, if comments are made, I'm like, you know what? If, if vet school were about strength and like, can I do this? Am I big enough? There would be like a bodybuilding contest at the beginning of it. And that's not on the application. So it has nothing <laughs> to do with it. You know, it just doesn't. <laughs> but I think what I want, you know, students and my colleagues and my peers to know is that it's okay if, if we're forging a different path and if practice doesn't look like what it looked like 40 years ago, that's okay. And I'm not a bad vet and I am not not cut out for rural practice. And I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. So like jump on board mm-hmm. or don't. And that there are... I'm not the only one. There are a ton of us out there forging this road that love what we do and wouldn't pick anything else. And medicine is hard. Veterinary medicine is hard no matter what avenue you take to get into it. It's just hard. So... Find something that you love and stick with it. And then the hard doesn't suck so bad. Yeah. And I think for me, I'm just extremely proud to be a Black woman going into rural medicine because it's so rare. And I know that I'm going to get a lot of pushback about it. But honestly, like I want to prove them wrong. And I want them to be like, hey, I doubted her before. But look at all of the stuff that she's doing right now. Like She's killing it. She's crushing it. Maybe she has her bad days, but you know what? She did it. And I want to be that role model for other people that feel like just because they're colored, they can't go into something like this. And especially women, because you already have that like that like negative stigma against you as a woman, clearly because we're having this conversation. So it's just kind of a double hit. And I just, yeah, I kind of like how everybody's saying like anything is possible. And if you love it, just go ahead and do it. People will always say, you can't do it. And Forget the naysayers. Yeah. So twirl on your haters, as Beyonce says. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I, I guess I will close out with is that I really want to see a profession that is really supportive of its colleagues, right? Like I, I really kind of want to see you all really stand for each other. And and I do think, and I mean, I've certainly been around for a long time, seen numerous generations of, of students along the way kind of go into their careers. And, and, you know, I really do see some of this internal kind of critique a lot and not recognizing necessarily that times change, practice changes, demographics change, communities change, professional needs change. I mean, there's constant there's, you know, nothing stays the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing stays the same. It's very much like every time, you know, my birthday comes around and people are like, ooh, how do you feel about this age? And I'm like, well, the alternative is not, <laughs> not, not <laughs> this age, right? <laughs> you know, to not change and not to kind of follow that path of evolution is to perish, right? And so I really do hope to see a profession that really practices as a profession, self-love, 
So, so I will certainly invite any of your critics again. I will invite you to twirl on your haters. Um, and, and and the great words of Beyonce. And so any parting any parting words from any of you, any or all. Dude, I love I just want to tell Asia that I'm yeah, I like it. I like it. Um I just wanna let Asia know that I'm hiring. So, you know, like if you graduate and still need a job, call me. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'll definitely keep that in mind. I think I have your contact info. <laughs> Texas is special. Just so you know, Texas is special. Yeah, right, right. I mean, right. I have some externship time coming up, so maybe I'll come out and see what's up. Give me a call. <laughs> Look at that. It's like matchmaking on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so matchmaking on a podcast. Well, I want to thank each of you for joining me for this brief conversation on women in large animal and rural practice. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Asia, good luck to you. Good luck and Godspeed. I know that you are going to kill it, crush it, yeah, twirl, all of that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And thank you all. This has been a really fun conversation. So with that, I will bring this episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast to a close. You can find the podcast on all podcast apps, Stitcher, Apple, iTunes. I don't know if iTunes is still a thing. All of the podcast <laughs> apps. You can also find us on Facebook at, under AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air, where I post not only information about the shows, but also information about all kinds of issues related to diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine and in higher education more broadly. So with that, again, I want to thank my wonderful guests and colleagues for taking some time out to be on the show. Thank you so much, ladies. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And we will catch you next time.